The date is July 4th, 2021. You're a Charleston native, participating in a parade in the historic southern city. Float after float go by, and you wave the flag of everyone else lining the streets of Charleston. The Union Jack. Welcome to Imagine If, the alternate history podcast. I'm your host, Brody Burton. Welcome to back to Imagine If, the Narrative Alternate History Podcast. Today's episode, as you might guess, is where the U.S. loses the American Revolution. You'd be 100% wrong. The U.S. in this alternate universe still wins the revolution, and is late, but is later brought back under British rule. This is because instead of adopting the U.S. Constitution, the Articles of Confederation remain in place until they are annulled because every state is conquered by the British Empire. But first, some background on the United States Constitution and on the Articles of Confederation. After the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4, 1776, the Founding Fathers of the Second Continental Congress recognized a new form of government would be needed. However, it was far from the ultra-powerful government we have today. For example, under the Articles of Confederation, the entire executive branch, Supreme Court, and even the U.S. dollar would be illegal and in order to get laws passed in Congress, a supermajority would be needed. A supermajority is where two-thirds of Congress are controlled by a single party. To take an example of this, let's look, like, look at the Trump impeachment of 2019 to 2020. Whatever your opinion may be on it, the House of Representatives with a simple Democratic majority was able to impeach Donald Trump. However, the Senate was split pretty evenly. Article 1 of the impeachment had 48 senators supporting and 52 opposing. Article 2 of the impeachment had 47 senators supporting and 53 opposing. In case you're wondering, the last supermajority in the House of Representatives was held by the Democratic Party in the late 1970s. The last time a party had a supermajority in the Senate was in the mid-60s, which, and this was also the Democratic Party who held the supermajority. So it was also the last time a super a party had had a supermajority in both houses in a hundred years. So naturally, a lot of fighting and very little policy could be put in place. The Republicans, by the way, haven't had a supermajority in either house for over a hundred years. Also interesting, the Articles kept each U.S. state a sovereign, independent country. In many ways, the Articles of Confederation was very similar to today's European Union, where the national legislature is a joke, the president is forgettable, and a pan-continental and little pan-continental policy can be put in place. Actually, fun fact, George Washington was not the first president of the United States, as under the Articles of Confederation there were ten presidents, each serving just a year, or less than a year. However, the presidents are relatively insignificant, and looking at the list, John Hancock is probably the only recognizable name. However, he's more famous for his signature rather than his term in office. 
The articles failed to stand the test of time, and shortly after the American Revolution, Congress proved they could not gather funds to pay the soldiers. And if you can't pay soldiers who have served in the army and have access to weapons, they are going to revolt. So unsurprisingly, when the soldiers weren't paid and they still had their weapons, they revolted. This led to Shays Rebellion and various revolutions across Massachusetts. There were also some very significant re revolutions in Virginia and throughout the colonies. Ex uh, forced, only four states were able to pay off their debt from the American Revolution. So imagine if the Articles were never replaced, each state retained their sovereignty with all the issues that came with it. The rioting in the North was met with an unsympathetic South. Of the six nations of the South, three had already paid off their debts, and Georgia, South Carolina, and Delaware were close to paying off their own. Unlike their northern brethren, the South was growing rich. Your name is Thomas Jefferson, and you're, well, Thomas Jefferson. You're a plantation owner in Virginia, and you're currently really rea relaxing in the, your plantation home while your slaves work in the field generating your fortune. Right now, you're enjoying the works of Voltaire. A slave comes to you. Master Jefferson, President Madison is at the door awaiting you. Bring him in, you say to the slave. Moments later, your friend and the President of Virginia, James Madison, comes into your parlor. Jefferson, it's nice to see you again. President Madison, you as well. Would you like a cup of tea? Yes, please. You motion to a slave who goes to the kitchen to prepare a pot of tea for you and your friend. What is it you have come here to discuss? Actually, matters in Richmond, your friend says. Well, what is the matter? Virginia has paid her debts. That's excellent news. Yes, and now the state is generating excess revenue. What is to be done with this revenue, you ask, concerned? We are considering funding a faction of the French Revolution. With this, your ears perk up. Since your days in France during the American Revolution, you've been a devout Francophile. You've been following the events in France very closely. Which faction will we be funding? Certainly not that Robespierre character, yes? Madison draws you back into reality. Funding isn't approved yet, but we plan on funding a faction led by Lafayette. Well, that's wonderful news, you say in delight. After all he did here, imagine what he can do in France. Madison and Jefferson talk long into the afternoon until Madison leaves to begin the trip back to Richmond. Across the pond in Britain, the sun would never set on the British wrath toward their former colonists. George III took an oath that he would bring the colonies back into his hands. He began his work quickly. British troops stationed in the American unorganized territory, which technically now had no owner because there wasn't really a U.S. government, but regardless, British troops moved into Detroit to annex the territory. Then they embargoed the South in hopes and blockaded the South in hopes of blocking the money flow to the Lafayette camp in France. Britain did not want 
the French Revolution to be resolved peacefully. France had been the nation's most bitter rival, and they enjoyed the pains which France was going through. However, this did very little, as the colonists just moved the money into northern cities like Philadelphia and Boston, which moved it to Paris. Speaking of Boston, the epicenter of British rage, George III began making a plan to retake the former colonial city. On July 17, 1794, President James Madison of Massachusetts and Jonathan Trumbull of Connecticut were discussing a trade deal in Worcester, Massachusetts. Mr. Trumbull, Adams says, I believe it would work best for both our states if merchants could freely assemble in Boston and an aid rushes in. Interrupting Adams. The British, he says, panting. They've taken Maine and New Hampshire. This sends both Trumbull and Adams into a panic. If the British were attacking the northern parts of New England, surely they would be next. Adams rushed back to Boston and Trumbull to New Haven, where they planned out their war strategy. Massachusetts troops quickly moved north to Manchester, where they fought the British for control of New Hampshire. In the Green Mountain Republic, the Vermonters held off the British in true American style, guerrilla warfare. The British could not hold the Green Mountain Republic as it was full of hillbillies, but attempted to hold New Hampshire. However, the stream became moot when New England forces took Concord. However, the British held off the New Englander forces when Massachusetts failed to retake Portland in what was formerly northern Maine, what we would call today, what was formerly northern Massachusetts, but what we would call today's Maine. The British Crown forces negotiated with the Americans in York, the British colony of Canada, where they eventually decided that Maine would be annexed by Britain while the rest of New England remained intact. Unlike her northern cousins, Georgia would not have as much luck fending off a foreign power. Spain was along her southern border and joined Britain as a dominant global power. A global power who saw Georgia as a nice-looking piece of real estate. At least the part known as present-day Mississippi and Alabama. In 1800, Spain faked a border skirmish on the town of St. Mary's and used it as merit to declare war. Spain invaded southern Georgia and troops moved towards Savannah. However, France was forceful in making sure Spain stopped there. France forced peace negotiations between her two allies. When the Treaty of Paris of 1800 was signed, Georgia ceded some land to Georgia and Spain paid Georgia a small amount of money. However, this was insubstantial. The date is February 7th, 1802. Your name is Alexander Hamilton. And right now you're the four-term president of New York State. You're in Albany right now, ready to propose a piece of legislation that would allow New York to buy Georgia. Gentlemen, you say addressing the New York Parliament. I have here a piece of legislation that, if passed, would allow our nation to annex Georgia. That state had recently been dealing with a financial crisis, and we are specifically placed, due to our national bank, to assist the nation. The crowd 
breaks into a half-hearted applause. As the word of Hamilton is law in Albany, and the law of Albany is the law in New York. Hamilton is a dictator of sorts. Like Julius Caesar in the Senate, Hamilton is all-powerful. The law passes. However, this weakened the New York Treasury, and with a British lion lurking in the shadows. It was only a t matter of time before the lion caught the mouse, no matter how rich the mouse was. In 1805, Britain faked a border skirmish along Lake Ontario. Quickly, they used this to invade upstate New York. Pennsylvania and New Jersey joined in to assist the New Yorkers. Hamilton moved the government to Staten Island. Albany fell in Mar March, and soon troops crossed the border into Pennsylvania. Soon, only Philadelphia and New York remained. Put under siege in winter 1805, they surrendered on St. Valentine's Day 1806. Britain annexed the three nations as well as Georgia. Their march, however, continued southward. Delaware fell instantly. Maryland held up until October 1806. Opposition was fierce in Virginia, who had been receiving funds from Lafayette and the French. First in Alexandria, then Fairfax, then Richmond, the British made slow and steady progress with heavy casualties through 1807. Then after Richmond, southern forces collapsed with a large slave result, revolt. Britain swooped in and annexed the territory. Then New England remained. King George III was assassinated by a Rhode Islander in London in 1803. This was in retaliation to the recent British victories in southern the United States. He died instantly, and his son, George IV, took over and quickly declared war against the four New England nations, not going after Vermont, because after the fierce guerrilla warfare earlier, he didn't see it wise. A full invasion of Boston, New Haven, Providence, and other New England ports resulted in a quick, hostile takeover by the British Empire. Britain would go on to be a long and prosperous empire. North America, at least that of British North America, was incorporated as the country of Columbia in 1857, akin to Scotland or Wales and Britain. Slavery was abolished across the empire in 1855, and riots in the South occurred, however they were put down. The French Republic, also known as the Lafayette Republic, survives to this day, although many radicals such as Napoleon Bonaparte and Robespierre threatened the Republic early on.